0: We launched Amuse Podcasts with a delightful family-owned and run French estate, Rive Blanc. Today, we are excited to share the story of another wonderful estate, Left Coast. Located in Oregon's Willamette Valley AVA, Left Coast is an operating farm that makes superb wine and offers visitors a visual feast. Meet Founders Suzanne and Bob. What is Left Coast? What does it mean to you, Suzanne?
1: Well, it means we're a family of left-handers in the first place. (laughs) I mean, three of the family are lefties, and the present CEO, our youngest Taylor, is a right-hander, and so am I but we were always outvoted by the lefties when the kids were growing <laughs> up. So that's part of it. But left coast, I, you know, we're, we are on the left side of the country. Um, you know, if you ever saw that old uh, New Yorker cover, there was kind of this coast and that coast. And uh, so it came, it came kind of as just something whimsical from that point of view.
2: And our winemaker, whose name is Joe Wright, Happens to be (laughs) left-handed. Joe is a key player here, so it adds to the left coast. And
1: Joe thinks we have a propensity of of hiring lefties, which is not true, (laughs) but it is true. If you look in shop, we have a lot of um, an inordinate number of left-handed people. But
2: but more (laughs) substantively, it's a family-owned farm, Mm. and uh, we try to create diversity in everything we do.
0: Yeah. so what was the what was the impetus? What was the spark that made it go? I mean at some point you must have had some vision so what 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 was that
1: well we were living living in France right after college, so we just kind of took our our books and our and our clothing and went off to France right and we spent a lot of time in burgundy and at that time, I had lived in Italy for a couple of years and uh, yeah, drunk mostly vino locale, you know the local, local, local mm-hmm. wine, and you know in terms of 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 my education, uh, I I grew up in in Southern California, so I certainly had a- access to Napa and Sonoma, but um, you know it was it was it, the catalyst was really Italy, and then then later France, mm-hmm. so we should have come back to the Pacific Northwest. I originally come from Barrie, farmers north of seattle we had bought a little derelict condo on bainbridge island for like forty nine thousand dollars and uh when we were coming back to the states we got no viable job offers in the pacific northwest it was very humbling we were young but we were kind of thinking we were kind of marketable and so we got we both got job offers in denver colorado we went to denver Uh, thinking we were three to fivers. And instead, we had three children in five years, Mm -hmm. and the rest was history. So Denver, even when we started with Left Coast, uh, Colorado was our first market. They Mm -hmm. really came to the fore in terms of supporting our But I
2: think the time in France was really the inspiration Mm -hmm. for a place like this. I I noted quickly that France did a really good job of zoning. Mm -hmm. So they had agricultural districts, Mm -hmm. and we are in an ag district here. We had ample water. We had incredible soil, mm-hmm. and we had these beautiful rolling hills with stands of old growth oaks. So aesthetically, it was pleasing, and then had the potential on top of it. And so it it kind of checked all the boxes in terms of like a dream place you would like your children and your grandchildren
1: to own.
0: So you spent some time looking around, as I recall, right?
2: Oh, a long time, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes.
1: And at the front of the property, we were looking at photographs from, you know, 17 years ago. And there's Italian cipressi cypresses <laughs> at the front. Right. So there's little vignettes. Even our um, our little herb garden was a vignette mm-hmm. from a a restaurant that we, you know, couldn't afford the great restaurants (laughs) in in Paris. So we would go to the periphery, the outskirts of Paris. And there was one little, um, for me, it was really a catalyst, uh, a restaurant that the food was wonderful. You were there for two and a half hours between courses. You went out to the herb garden and those kinds of things. And at the end of the dinner... Um, Bob said, what did you think about the wine? And I said, the wine was wonderful. This is how we should live. And the wine at that point, this was in 1981, the wine was $50, which was an enormous, (laughs) um, extravagant (laughs) amount of money for us to spend. And we thought it was worth it. And if if he had told me the dollar amount of that wine at the beginning of dinner, I would have put the kibosh (laughs) on it. But instead, yeah. And, and so that was all part and parcel of, of the formation, might we say.
0: So, so was it the the end product that you envisioned, or was it the, the terroir, the land that drove it, or was it the lifestyle? I think or? it started
2: yeah. as the dream mm-hmm. that if you had the land, mm-hmm. and the land was, first of all, aesthetically beautiful and had the potential to mm-hmm. produce great wine, mm-hmm. that was the motivating factor. And it was in an ag... So and that was really important mm-hmm. to us that it wasn't going to be with uh, WalMarts or billboards. <laughs> right, right.
1: And um. and I think it was it was more the um, expectation and the contemplation that you could do something extraordinary here. Mm-hmm. We, you know, certainly we consulted. I mean, you know, we were novices, so we consulted. You know, the primary soil man, and mm-hmm. you know, all these kinds of things. And one of the great stories was. Um, Bob picked up the phone and called David Lett, and David Lett was called the Papa of Pinot, mm-hmm. and he was of one of the founding fathers. He's he's gone now, but his uh, son Jason is is run, running Irie, which yes. is it was the family family enterprise or is still. And uh, David picked up the phone. Mm-hmm. You know, would that have happened in Napa or Sonoma? <laughs> Maybe not. But um, Bob inquired as to you know if David were planting today. Where would he plant? Mm. And he kind of really pointed almost to this property. Mm. So that was another affirmation that, you know, maybe, you know, we, we weren't so far off. I had to pull my
2: dictionary out because he used the word diurnal swing,
1: <laughs> day <day-night laughs> night temperature
2: swing. And I, I got the concept, <laughs> but I hadn't heard the
1: word, so I must admit I had to... I have to go but, look it up quickly. but that is such a tribute to the collaborative you know nature of this industry. Mm-hmm. We are so lucky to be in Oregon because. Mm-hmm. You know, here we've been, we were 150th founded out of now 500 operations in the Willamette Valley. And we, too, have tried to pay it forward, you Mm -hmm. know, with new people coming to Mm -hmm. us and, you know, talking about planting or where they're thinking of. And there's a number now that are very viable enterprises Mm -hmm. that we sat on our tasting room patio Mm -hmm. discussing these things. So we were treated similarly, and Mm -hmm. and the industry has just been wonderful.
2: Suzanne's mother was up here. Right. And both of our boys were snowboarders of it, and they had gone to <laughs> Manhood Snowboard Camp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we had exposure to Oregon and Callie right. yeah. loves it. So yeah. the next generation who really now runs mm-hmm. the place and owns it. Um,
1: yeah. Had a proclivity to Oregon. Right. Yeah. yeah. So
0: so buying the land is sort of one thing, right? I mean, you know, you've got the ability to do it, you can buy it, but then making something with it is really different no matter what industry you're in. Yeah, it's
2: it's attracting the right people. Right.
0: So how did how did that work? You know, so you had the vision from France, from Italy, and then you had the exposure to the West Coast different places, ended up in Oregon. Well
2: I grew up on a farm but I think You quickly learn that you (laughs) know that. You learn humility. And we took the the UC Davis classes (laughs) remotely. Uh and We realized how little we truly (laughs) knew. So we tried to surround ourselves with really good people. Mm -hmm. And
0: And how did you find them? What was the process? Well, the
2: first was Luke Mm -hmm. McCollum. And we found him at the uh, Napa Trade Show for North America.
1: Which is a unified. In 2003, it was the first thing that, you know, at least in, in North America, that we really went to. Mm. It's a huge show. And uh, it's in Sacramento, but it's really the show for, for Napa and mm. Sonoma. And uh, he was 26 years old. Mm. And he was um, uh, managing vineyards for Harlem Bond, which you know it's quite a rarefied kind of place and uh so it was a huge for him to come from california here that was a huge leap of faith and for us to take on a 26 year old <laughs> right because you know initially it was just us right. and luke and uh he managed the vineyards and he did the winemaking and we had one um employee mm-hmm. and uh we had a little orange office that was Painted for the Broncos, the Denver Broncos, but that, that's a that's a segue there. Um, but um, we had one employee who you know was managing, you know the the basically the development of our front gate and and and, and, and you know uh, what what was here then, and uh, she said one day. Uh, we're sitting in our little office, and she says, Suzanne, we have a one-butt office for two butts. And that was about it. That is now a little, a little, uh, you know, kind of connective tissue to a, an extra bathroom now in our operation. So, But uh,
2: Luke really fit the ethos, too, mm-hmm. in that we were very much about the land, and if mm-hmm. you can grow the best grapes, you can produce right. really good wine. Mm-hmm. And what reinforced the decision for me the day after we hired him or made the offer I was going into one of the breakout sessions. I think Suzanne largely went into the marketing ones. I did, once. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was going into the ones about, you know, mostly about the land. Mm-hmm. And this man, why didn't know stop me? And he says, you don't realize how fortunate you are,
1: but you hired a superstar.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and Luke truly was. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: He was with us for 14 years, and so mm-hmm. he left uh, right around the turn of 17. And by that point, um, Joe Wright, who's our winemaker now, um, you know, had overlapped him for a number of years. Mm-hmm. And so uh, either in consultancy mm-hmm. or working with us. So it um, it's all worked out. So we
2: planted the vineyards ourselves with our own crews. Mm-hmm. So we had lots of stuck tractors and broken axles. <laughs> you know, the normal farming um, things. But mm-hmm. It was all actually a lot of fun, too.
0: So did, did you need additional help beyond the winemaker, you know, beyond look skills to get the vineyards in or were you able to just do it well with
2: our crew but Luke were many as we all did mm-hmm. in the early days
1: so mm-hmm. but, but our crew we basically still have family members from that first crew right career. And that is kind of extraordinary for a, a, for a property our size or an operation our size. You know, wine can be made in any number of ways. And initially, we were a great growing operation. And I think that we had 30 acres planted. And then a neighbor of ours, we had a 100-year lease over another 20 so of their property. So we had an initial 50 acres to work with. And we have had, you know, that same crew. And so... You know, part of uh, Joe Wright, our our winemaker's um, philosophy is that, you know, they know mm-hmm. these vineyards so intimately now, mm-hmm. and they also have taken some ownership of, of, of our vineyards and... Uh, It's, um, you know, when we need, uh, contract labor, everybody needs contract labor in this valley. Mm -hmm. And yet our crew, since they're with us all year round, they really play a managerial role almost for, um, for the contract labor. And it makes Mm -hmm. a big difference. Um, Joe, having been with us, you know, for almost a decade now, um, you know, he is fine tuning things in ways that would be impossible Mm -hmm. if he weren't so intimate with the vineyards. Mm -hmm. And, he um you know he has gotten to a point we had a vineyard manager after Luke and now Joe is basically with Arturo, our crew chief, is running the vineyards and the winemaking facility. In the winemaking facility, we have a second-in-command, Mark Rutherford, who came out of the Oregon State program. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we have someone behind him, Alex Lindblom, and someone behind him, right. Patrick Hare. So we have a really good crew, and Joe is a wonderful yeah, man. I was going
2: to say, too, we got really fortunate with outside help in that... Um, you need, to get, you need outside help in a lot of things. But mm-hmm. in 2008, we got the largest grant in the state of Oregon to go solar. Mm-hmm. So we were able to go solar to provide all of our electrical needs. Mm-hmm. And then we struck gold multiple more times with uh, assistance from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife mm-hmm. and Department of Ag to uh, restore and reclaim our, our old growth forests. Mm-hmm. So now we... Have about 40 acres done, and another 60 that we're clearing and restoring Mm. to their native state, Mm. and then working on uh, grasslands and the rest. We really want to create like something that we don't we envision, but we haven't seen yet, like Mm -hmm. this ecological marvel. Mm -hmm. And that's that's our our real vision. I might say buildings. Mm. We never we we made do with buildings, and we've Mm. repurposed things like. Suzanne could speak to it, but our current tasting room is an old tractor shed. And so we think someday maybe our kids' grandkids will have these beautiful limestone (laughs) glass buildings. But right now we we have... uh, yeah. yeah
1: Taylor Taylor jokes that there isn't a building on this property that a Forklift has not driven through he's probably <laughs> pretty pretty correct but we opened to the public our first vintage was 2004 and we sat on it a year too long mm. and we were all into this you know Paul Mason never arrived before it's time um, <laughs> but in the end it served us very well but instantly we were out of vintage mm. and so you know in the business, um, you either haven't sold that vintage or something went amiss in a way, do you know? Um, but we were really lucky um, with our 2008 vintage, and the eight vintage was was recognized, the 12, the 14. Those in Oregon were re- recognized as, as, as really special vintages. Yeah. And in the 2008 um, you know, we were so small. Then somebody calls me and says, has you seen Wine Spectator?" And you know, it's like, of course I have not. You know, this morning, but um, they did a multi-page article, and they had put Callie's cuvee, name for our daughter, at the top of the thing. Mm. So that caught us up to vintage, and we've been kind of at vintage ever since. And good, good. And good I think now
2: yeah, we're 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 maybe not slowly, but we're we're clearly realizing the power of all estate because we can control the process mm-hmm. from the vineyards mm-hmm. to the bottle mm-hmm. and we do it all on premise and we've discovered a lot of winemaking is iterative <laughs> you keep doing the same process and if you know the grapes intimately all the decisions that are made mm-hmm. you've made before and you just keep fine tuning and proving mm-hmm. and it shows in the <clears> quality mm-hmm. of our wines and the consistently high scores that so we're. that's something that's evolved that we're I'm not sure we really thought of that on the front end but but it's a huge huge advantage huge advantage but well,
1: the fu- the fun thing of that <laughs> is is that you know sometimes you see um, wineries kind of trying to manage so that there 's a real consistency year after year after year in those vines in the, the you know the wines they produce and our philosophy here and joe 's philosophy is that we take the best of the vintage mm-hmm. so there is vintage variation um, but we're every single year we 're trying to get the best out of that vintage mm-hmm. so there are you know vintage um, differences, and we're not doing a cookie cutter that you know you get this you know same wine same, year right, after right, year, right. and and that's been absolutely delightful. Our 2019 Gris, for example, uh, um, Joe is so excited because he thinks it's the best Gris ever made, mm. and and <clears throat> we think so too, right? Unduly influenced or not, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. By his opinion.
0: So how do you decide? what to make. I mean, obviously you have the vineyards and you have to make choices on what to plant and where, but how do you decide how to position the different wines, you know, both from a, a process perspective, you know, the, the way you create them, but then also the market? How, how, how do you do our that?
2: Our son, Taylor, who got his <coughs> MBA, uh, along with our national sales manager, that's a whole other story, they mm-hmm. were classmates mm-hmm. in, so the university university of <coughs> Bordeaux. Yeah. Right, right. It's 2016. But he does a production planning meetings mm-hmm. where we look at here are our needs, mm-hmm. here's our inventory, and here's how much of this mm-hmm. we're going to make, and mm-hmm. here's how much of that we're going to mm-hmm. make. And mm-hmm. so it's gotten. Uh, pretty planned out
1: yeah and of course you know climatically what some people don't understand is climatically you know we can't do big cabs here because we don't have the heat so you know some occasionally you'll get you know people into the tasting room who say ah what kind of cabs do you have And we say none (laughs) None? um (laughs) if we were sourcing grapes you know then we could have a cab Mm -hmm. on our list but we don't do that at Mm -hmm. all so um you know i think that we've um you know, we're playing to our strengths. We we do have a couple of Northern Rhone varietals, a Syrah and a Viognier, and those both are kind of tributes that here we are on the 45th parallel, <laughs> which is not Burgundy in mm. France. It is Northern Rhone. Yeah. And um, it's not, you know, you need more heat for Syrah, but we've been very successful most years with bringing mm. that Syrah um, to fruition and, and to the right-rightness. And mm. the viognier has been really fun, so... Mm. Um, you know, so those are some of the some of the things, and the, um, you know, we do a blanc de noix, which would be champagne and champagne, but we're not in champagne, mm-hmm. and you know, that's a good four and a half, five year process, mm-hmm. and for. Uh, operation our size, some people would say, That's crazy what are you doing? But you know, it's it's fun for us. We love to drink it and we sell it and um, you know, it gives more breath to and possibility and engagement for our winemaking staff as well. So so we do, you know, we do some ciders, we have some of the pioneer apples on on property these were planted by the first pioneers in the mm-hmm. area we do one called um settler cider and another one that that taylor took on called <laughs> so meaning a celebratory kind of mm-hmm. apple that's a lower price than the settlers mm-hmm. and uh, we seem to have a year and a lean year with our apple production Mm -hmm. uh so so all of these things are kind of to you know some of the productions are very tiny and and uh then we have some core wines where the productions Mm -hmm. are larger
0: Hmm. so that's all wonderful and (laughs) it's great to have fantastic land and and people and have the vision but then at some point you have to sell the stuff yeah yeah so how did you approach oh, sell the wine? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's that. There's that. So how did you, you know, and I say this because we mm-hmm. visited a beautiful little vineyard years, some years ago in Limoux and Southern France and yeah. and this couple, like, 60 acres, hectares. And she said, I never envisioned it would be so hard. And mm-hmm. then, there's a state. So how, how did you approach yeah. selling it? What, what did you do?
2: Yeah. <laughs> oh, I think. Suzanne could speak to that far better than I. <laughs> well, you make the analogy that's similar to selling books. Yeah? Well, selling okay,
1: <laughs> I sold books in an earlier life, right. and and I thought that ideas mattered, and mm-hmm. I think wine matters. I mm-hmm. think wine and culinary pairings. I mean, a part of that came, you know, when I was living in Italy. I, mm-hmm. uh, my daughter Callie and I, we write this blog every, you know, two or three weeks, and um, the initial one was about people always ask you about your wine experiences or. What's your favorite wine? And to look at our wines, you know, it's like choosing among your family members, really. But, you know, I'll never forget, you know, being um, in Italy and and being in Orvieto and being in front of the cathedral and sitting at a little table and they deliver a chilled white vino locale. And I felt like I'd been beatified, you know? So, you know, so, so some of that is kind of what you want to take people back to Mm -hmm. and that's a very personal thing of course Mm But, um, you know, we started, we had 11 acres, we still do, of Chardonnay. Mm-hmm. That was a really hard sell initially because mm-hmm. the whole Chardonnay market was California. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, you know, very kind of buttery and, and high oak kind of wines. And uh, it's only been in the last few years that Chardonnay um, treatment of, uh, Oregon treatments of Chardonnay have really come to the forefront. Mm. And we're elated because, you know, that <laughs> yes. happened. But um, our white Pinot, which really hit a chord, that was a total experiment. We had some underripe fruit. Uh, pinot Meunier, for example, or is is brought in early, and we had some wine we were bringing in early. And different years, sometimes we've had a little Pinot Meunier, sometimes it's been all Pinot Noir, sometimes a little Pinot Noir, little Meunier, little Pinot Blanc. It's been an enormous hit for us. So that was almost fate and destiny. You thought. And then our other, you know, wines, Cali's Cuvée, became our flagship. We had very good reviews from the very beginning. And, um, you know, we branched out into things that will keep us all interested <laughs> and having fun as well mm-hmm. as, you know, what is selling. But, know, um, I'll say our first
2: market was Colorado because mm-hmm. that's where we lived. Right. And then it kind of went from there, right?
0: Through distributors, through white yeah, clubs? So, how, did, yeah, how, did you, exactly. how did you open up? Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, you know, um, we, our first wine, um, uh, national wines uh, uh, manager we hired in uh, uh, 2010. And uh, Mark had been um, with uh, with a, a fellow witness tree, a fellow um, uh, uh, winery here, not far away in Amityola Hills. And, um, you know, he was pretty clear as to, you know, what what we needed to mm-hmm. do in terms of even numbers of being out in the broader market. So we are in um, 33 states now, and we're also in, um, I guess, four foreign markets now. Canada has been very supportive recently. Uh, we're in multiple. You have to go province by right. province. and canada is the largest you know consolidated buyer in the world so you know we are making you know small inroads internationally Mm -hmm. and you know once you get to the point where your wine is sold then you don't have to think about that (laughs) too much anymore except you know when covid you know things like this so you know there's always market challenges Mm -hmm. and one of our friends um, early on in the industry here in Oregon um, said to me, "You know, Suzanne, there's always a new, you know, a new cute girl in the neighborhood." <laughs> and, and, and 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 you know, this is from someone whose wines I really admire, and and um, and we found that to be true, of mm-hmm. course, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, yeah, you know, slowly but surely, and then of course, some of the distribution channels you know you have small entities you know we aren't really a house that's fit for huge entities mm-hmm. and so some of them have you know gone belly up right. come and gone. Uh, but we have some very good partners out there and we're very very grateful mm-hmm. yeah
0: and how important is the direct connection with people who buy wine you know whether it's through a retail store or through the wine club or visiting you know what how, how have you developed that
1: we we think it's a essentially important mm-hmm. we were mm-hmm. just on a call this morning with uh Chardole, who's our national sales director and he was also a classmate of of taylor when they they did their mba together shardole's been with us mm-hmm. for three years now and um he was saying he, his first question was how did that you know the people who came from austin who buy our wines, how <laughs> did that go uh, so you know it's hard to convey what this property means to us when you're out in the market, you can have visuals, you can mm-hmm. have all this stuff, but you know our biggest supporters are people who have been here yep. because they they sense the magic, they sense mm-hmm. the commitment. They meet our winemaker, mm-hmm. they meet our children, you know, and and it makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know we are, you know we've we've got, we've got great strides to make too in that in that area, but um, that you know personal connectivity i remember when mark pate came to us as our first national um sales manager you know he he was a texan by birth and he had this texan twain and you know suzanne so important you know these connections it's a you know it's a it's a personal relationship Mm -hmm. and and there's parts of that that are true very still very Mm -hmm. true and what we see also Mm -hmm. is people morph from the restaurants to distribution to back again to you know starting their own entities to one of our former um, national sales managers now has a wine bar in Lisbon you know Portugal so, oh, <laughs> you know people you know people stay um, impassioned about the industry but go in different directions and I
2: think the most refreshing thing is that we just have to be ourselves right we don't have to be anybody other than who we are and. Mm-hmm experience mm-hmm. the day here mm-hmm. with us with all the the ups and the downs and the warts mm-hmm. and the thistles and the, <laughs> next to the flowers and right. most people come away thinking wow this truly is a special place
1: yeah we're, we're grateful for that yeah.
0: so thinking about the name again and, and, and sales and all that as you reflect on the 17 years and then the vision how important is the name to the whole thing you know is two syllables you know is does it become something that resonates with people? Or, you know, what what do you think? If you look back on that... I think that... it took
2: on a life of its own. Mm-hmm. And then we also have the, the vineyards, each with their own name, because mm-hmm. they each have their own terroir, and we've also right. organized the vineyards by by uh, Pinot clones. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe they are more targeted underneath the left-coast umbrella. Mm-hmm. So it's maybe a little of each.
1: Yeah, you know, we... we um... We made these ties to France, so we mm-hmm. have a left bank, we have a right, right bank, we have Truffle Hill is is connected because we're trying to do European truffles here mm-hmm. on property. High Acres is, you know, the highest point. We're 37 miles from the ocean. So you see the coastal range of Anduzer Corridor cuts Mm -hmm. right through that piece Mm -hmm. of property. Um, Field of Dreams was something that we acquired in a secondary nature, and it was our Field of Dreams. Mm -hmm. You know, the joke was that a fellow... Um, farmer who sold it to us, he and his wife, he said his wife got her dream house and we got our field of dreams. And, <laughs> and, and and initially it was all planted in crimson clover. I thought it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. And now that it's active production of mm-hmm. Pinot Noir and Pinot Meunier and Chardonnay and a little Syrah up there, it's the most beautiful thing I've mm-hmm. ever seen. Look,
2: and I used to stand leaning on the fence course looking at this piece <laughs> of land dreaming about it. See, that was... <laughs> <laughs> Part of the dream too.
1: too. Yeah, it so it it's very, it's very, very yeah. productive and 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 very beautiful. But the name, you know, um, uh, Bob's family name is difficult to pronounce, so <laughs> we didn't want to go there. Mm-hmm. People in the industry said. You really need to have something in the middle of the alphabet. Now, whether that was valid or not, but in a wine list, they're usually alphabetical. So you don't want to be at the front. You don't want to be at the back. So when people get tired in the middle, there <laughs> they you land are. on left coast. <laughs> um, so that was that was one of the uh, that was one of the um, you know wise or not uh, bits of advice. But, you know, certainly some people, we're a family, as I think I noted earlier, of of Mm left-handers. Three of them, the five of us are left-handed. And so, you know, that was part of the, you know, part of the connective Mm -hmm. tissue as well. But, um, you know, certainly I have not had uh, much pushback. But, you know, occasionally, especially in these times, you know, you're going to have a left association maybe with politically. And I suppose that could have... um, you know, negative or positive or whatever ramifications, mm-hmm. but for the most part, I mean, we um, we um, have felt that uh, the name has served us well, and mm-hmm. at this point, you know, 17 years in, we're not going to really change our name, so for sure, here we are. I, mean,
2: I think Truffle Hill or Chardonnay really just hit kind of a magical accord almost with customers, and the same with the Pinot, I mean, you're ordering dinner, how can you resist Truffle Hill? Right.
1: (laughs) And, you know, on the labels, so they're they're associated with on the property. And Mm -hmm. uh, our daughter did a a wonderful map when she was about 17 um, for our trail system. Um, Totally unaware, Mm -hmm. someone called me one morning and said, have you seen the New York Times? It's like, no, I don't Mm -hmm. see the New York Times. You know, at 7 o'clock in the Mm -hmm. morning. But they had done an article and they called it wiking. It was winemaking and hiking, and Mm -hmm. someone had come across that we had cut some trails through the property. So, um, you know, Callie's Callie's map um, has really gone the distance from us. It morphed from basically a trail map Mm -hmm. to showing how we are laid out, Mm -hmm. and that identifies all of our different labels Mm -hmm. to their position on property. Mm -hmm. And people are interested in that. Really, Um, the
2: evolution, too, from... The initial 170 acres to almost 500 acres today. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: So it's 2020, dealing with um, some health issues, obviously, or potential health issues around the world. So let's say Susanna and Bob were at that same conference in 2003, virtually probably today. What would you tell them?
1: Oh, my gosh. (laughs) What would you tell them? (laughs) So, yeah, if
0: you had the vision today, right, and you wanted to, what would you What would you
1: talk about? Well, it's it's it, frankly it's 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 hard enough managing these issues now. So I think if we were a startup, it, you know it, it it would have been, it would have been harder to handle for sure. It would have mm-hmm. been discouraging. You know, we wouldn't have mm-hmm. had any brand or reputation built. Mm-hmm. But um, I think that you know so many of the people that we know in this industry from the get-go. They were optimistic. They were altruistic. Mm-hmm. They, uh, you know, wanted to build their dreams, you know? And and so why couldn't you do that now, wow. you know? I mean, especially when you're starting. I mean, you're starting with maybe 250 cases, you know? And right. so uh, while at that point that seems daunting, it's not as daunting as if, you know, you have larger production. Right. So, um So I think, you know, I I... I I, I am a woman of too many words, but I think in that case I would really be quiet and listen and try to be as supportive as I could be. You know? Mm-hmm. Especially if they'd already made the investment. Right. <laughs>
0: right. What about you, Bob? What would you, what would you mean, tell them?
2: Sense of place. You know, this was the dream and we found right. it. Mm-hmm. And since in those nearly 20 years a lot of the industry has moved this way mm-hmm. so I don't think we would find this particular right. property again. it would have been claimed so it may have been in a different place in Oregon, mm-hmm. uh,
1: so or in a different place in if we were at the Unified, a different place in California, a different place mm-hmm. in or maybe New even in the Okanagan or something. Like yeah, that. exactly. Yeah.
0: Exactly. Wow. Well, quite a journey. Well, thanks so much for <laughs> taking the time to give us the history, Suzanne and Bob.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Jim. Yeah. It was our pleasure.